everybody, welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, again, as always, we appreciate you being here. We have such great guests, and we got a lot coming, a lot more, a lot more interesting, diverse, just just lots of fascinating topics. If something catches my attention, I, I want to talk to that person. Today, of course, is no exception. But again, I just want to thank you to, uh, for supporting the people that support the podcast. Take a look at the stuff. It's all good. And do also take a look at uh, the pods over at DrDrew.com. Remember, After Dark is over there. And don't forget the streaming show, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at 3 o'clock, DrDrew.tv. If you like the stuff here, you will. The stuff we're doing over there is really fascinating. Very different, but uh, also fascinating. Today, my guest is Dr. Ian Smith. You know Ian from The Doctors. You also know him from a million books that he has authored, which I, I didn't even realize how many books you had authored. I was looking through your stuff going, oh my God, that is incredible. So, congratulations. Then there's a new book, Metflex Diet. Yeah. First of all, thank you. And it's always great to talk to you. I haven't seen you in a while since Rachel Ray's show. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, it's I don't keep track of the books, honestly, because I just love to write and I do it. But um, my t- Metflex Diet is my 24th book. And I just <laughs> last week. Just, had just my those, words, those words are insane. <laughs> 24. And here's what I didn't realize. And I want to I want to emphasize not just, I thought you wrote health books and nonfiction books exclusively, but oh, no, no. How many, five novels or something? Yeah. So the newest one, The Overnights, is my 25th book. It's my fifth novel. And, oh. you know, Drew, you and I have been in medicine and healthcare for so long that it's easy to allow ourselves to be pigeonholed into a box. Oh, yeah. And um, I've always believed that, listen, we got one life, man. Yeah. And while I love medicine, I love health and wellness and fitness, but there's more to life than that. And so yeah. I've always loved reading mysteries and thrillers, and I wanted to write them. And um, I told my publisher, I write novels, you're going to start publishing them. <laughs> well, but before we get to Netflix, let's drill on that a little bit, because I think that a not enough is made of that. I feel very strongly about what you've just said, that that you know a career should be an exploration as much as a dedication to a particular discipline. And I, for me, having had a really formal liberal arts education at a high level is what kind of opened my eyes to, to thought and different ideas and everything. And it, it started me on a path that I could not stop. It just went forever. Uh, and you went to Harvard undergraduate. Did that happen to you there? hundred percent. I mean, yeah. listen, I went to Harvard knowing I wanted to become a doctor, yeah. knowing that my primary interests were in medicine and science. But here's the deal. Back then, when I was going to school, if you wanted to become a doctor, you couldn't really publicly profess other interests yep. or they wouldn't take you seriously. That's right. And, right. And so all the other interests that I had, I had to keep quiet to myself and my family because God forbid a guidance counselor here that mm-hmm. I was interested in something else. And they would say, well, you're not, you're not serious. You know, we're not going to help you, you know? So um, yeah, I've always believed and Harvard kind of really helped this idea that, wow, there's so many interesting things in life. Like yeah. the great things, there's art, there's music, there's acting, there's history, there's politics. Yeah. yeah. And so, so yeah, so I, I really drank that and believed in it and yeah. it's guided my career. And, I made decisions like you, Drew. When I first started doing TV, I'll never forget it. When I started doing TV at NBC in New York, people thought I was lunatic. They yeah, thought no, I was who crazy. Who are you talking to, man? I, I, had to, I had to walk through glass. I, I had to hide. I had to hide what I was doing. Yeah, that, and they you, were like, right. 
And they were like, why would you ever? Yeah. You're trained to do orthopedic surgery. Why would you ever want to be on TV? Yeah. Well, lo and behold, um, that pathway in my career uh, was the has been the most rewarding. It set me up for my life. It set me up for my career. Yeah. I'm a very happy person. I've had a great career. And I'm, and I'm glad I made that decision. Yeah, I uh, I was doing radio once a week, thought I was doing community service because no one was talking to young people about AIDS. That really was the frame for what I was doing. And it got very popular very quickly. And the LA Times wrote an article and I was uh, f- sort of finishing my first year of residency and my residency director freaked out, like freaked the hell out. I, he, he had the, he called me in his office. He had the paper lying out on his desk. He was literally standing up and sitting down and smashing his fist on the table, spitting at me across the table that there was something wrong with me. What was, you know, and I thought, oh my God, maybe there is something wrong with me. I, I learned that day, never distrust a young person's instincts. Let them follow their damn instincts. God damn it. <laughs> that day. Well, and, for the, and for the listeners, when you say residency, you're a doctor, but you're still training. You know, you still have to do training yeah. after you get your medical diploma. Yeah. So you're doing a residency. Same thing happened to me, by the way. I started doing, when I was an intern, um, I started doing NBC in New York TV, uh, just doing reports. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. I, and honestly, I didn't envision a career in journalism. No, me neither. Me neither. But yeah. it was interesting and it was a way to communicate great information. And my residency director, he was the longest serving orthopedic chairman, I think, in the U.S. in history. Where, where were you? Because, you know, what? in your Wikipedia, it doesn't tell you, it doesn't say where you did your residency. Oh, yeah. I was at Montefiore okay. uh, up in the Bronx in, yeah. in New York. Yeah. And so I sit there across from him and he, he wasn't frothing, but he basically threatened me. Yeah. And he Mine basically said, he said, stop. Yeah, he, said to, he said to me, I'll never forget. He said, we can't control what you do on the outside. But if anything you do on the outside in any way conflicts with what we need to do here, you're going to have a problem. Yeah. 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 I got, similar, I got a similar tomato. And then, by the way, to my story goes. So two weeks later, he grabbed me in the cafeteria and goes, hey, I want to talk to you about what I said. And he goes. I just, you're going to ruin your career. You're going to destroy yourself. And this is the insanity. He was like 50 years old at the time. And, um, and by the way, fast forward two years, I run him to in the hall. I, I did stop for like six months. I just stopped. And then I started during that time, the whole, I don't know if you remember this, cause you were probably in college around this time. The, the HIV thing became a mandate. You, you have to go out and talk about it as a physician. And so he ran into me in the hall and he goes, Hey, you still doing that radio thing? Uh, you do that anymore? How about, I'll tell you what, I'll do it now. Let me, let me take over. I was like, Oh, you asshole. You've got, what? yes, literally that. And then he made me his chief resident and all was sort of well after that, but I will never forget this. So we had this, it's interesting. We had the same experience and we had this same desire to kind of explore and express ourselves in different ways. And it, it's, it's interesting. I think it's an important thing. And today, with today's world, we have podcasts and all these things. You can get the information on your phone. People oh, should be taking full advantage of that. It is. I got to tell you, it is so amazing how our careers have come full circle. When I was a correspondent, I would need to go and interview doctors about their research. You yeah. know, they did great research. Yeah. I wanted to take the research and introduce it to the of masses. Of course. They looked down their nose at me like, who is this guy? I don't want to talk to this guy, blah, blah. Fast forward, four years after I started, my phone was ringing off the hook. 
Everyone wanted to talk to me. Everyone yeah. wanted to be on TV. It right. was so, so anyway, I, I, I am happy that I go back to my college, like you said, I'm happy that when I was younger, I even though it was not popular outside of school, I believed that I could do different things. And medicine, and I love being a doctor, and medicine's great, but it's it doesn't define who I am. It's yeah. it's part of who I am, yep. but it doesn't define me. Yeah, interesting. It's just interesting. I I think I was more tied up in it. Uh, I, I I I was I was such a workaholic and stuff. But in recent years, I've started to feel almost exactly like you do. Like I, I should really be expanding any way I possibly can, especially at, at this age. You know, just a quick question for me out of curiosity. Were you because I noticed you went to Dartmouth and then finished in, at Chicago. Is that when Dartmouth didn't have a clinical place? You had to go, you just do two years at Dartmouth and you do two years somewhere else. Is that what happened? Great question, by the way. So Dartmouth is a four-year program. Now uh, it is. Now it is. But in the eighties, it was not. It had to, it was not. Yeah, it was not. But when I was there, it was a four-year program or you did two years at Dartmouth and two years at Brown. So when you yeah. got admitted, I remember that you decided, am I doing all four at Dartmouth or two yeah. and two? Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. What I did was I decided to do my last two years at University of Chicago, which was not part of the program. Once again, yeah. it was not normal. Mm-hmm. But my girlfriend at the time um, went to University of Chicago Law School. Oh, perfect. And and I knew I was a city guy. I'd done, I'd done my master's at Columbia, New York. Yeah, I liked the city. And while I loved living in New Hampshire, it was really cool. I learned how to become a great skier in New Hampshire. <laughs> I knew for the last two years, which, you know, are our clinical years, that I didn't want to see axe injuries. I wanted to see gunshots and all yeah. other kinds no, of stuff. Yeah, it, it, there's nothing like a, a county facility at uh, yeah. Chicago or LA or whatever, San Francisco. Yeah, so I moved. But, that's how I finished up at University of Chicago. White River Junction? Is that where Dartmouth is? Is that what they call it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hanover, Hampshire, and White well, River Junction is where we went to the VA hospital. So I went to Amherst College, and you, you Dartmouth guys, the undergrads, would come down and, and uh, take over on the weekend sometimes. <laughs> Isn't that funny? So you were there. We are sort of similar vintage in terms of how we were trained. And and, and I'm going to let you talk about the Netflix style. We're going to get deep into that. But one of the things I want to get to at some point is what your perceptions are of what we've been through recently and what happened to our profession during it, just to get your thoughts. But let, let's go to the Metflex diet because yeah. so, so what is metabolic flexibility? I'm, I'm fascinated okay. by this concept. Yeah. So I didn't know what it was. I'll be very honest. And, um, and I love to research like you do. And so, so many people were sending me messages on Instagram and Facebook saying, Hey, Dr. Ian, I'm eating better. I'm exercising better. Why can't I get the scale to move? So I'm like, well, are they really doing it? So I'm researching. And I come across this term I'd never seen before, metabolic flexibility. And this is what it means. Metabolic flexibility is akin to a hybrid car. A hybrid car has a battery and gas. So it has two fuel sources. When the battery runs down, then the fuel kicks in, the car keeps going. Versus a gas-powered car, only gas-powered car. Once the gas is empty, car stops unless you fill it back up. The gas car is metabolically inflexible. It can only use one fuel source. The hybrid car is metabolically flexible. It uses two fuel sources. Okay, take that concept, put it to the body. Our body has three major fuel sources, the three macronutrients, right? Fats, carbs, and protein. However, we tend to only be able to burn one of them really well and the others not so well. Genetically. Yeah, just in general. That's right. That's right. And so we can burn carbs well, not fats well, or we can burn fats well, not carbs. So we are, a lot of us are metabolically inflexible. 
And so what I realized was that everyone thought that at the age of 30, your metabolism all of a sudden just falls off the cliff, slows down, you gain weight, can't lose weight. Well, new research showed that's not true. Research showed that between the ages of 20 and 60, your metabolism actually is relatively stable. It doesn't, and when you hit up 60, you start losing about 0.7% per year. So why is it that so many people in their 40s and 50s and early 60s, why is it that they are seemingly doing the right thing, but not losing weight? The answer, I believe, and the research shows, is that they are likely to be metabolically inflexible. Their switch, their metabolic switch is stuck. So the Metflex diet is a six-week program to help unstick your metabolic switch to allow you to use whatever fuel source is available. You sit down to a plate of pasta full of carbs, you can burn it. You sit down to a fatty fish or fatty steak, you can burn it. You now have flexibility to use whatever's there. And that, when I did that, I had a thousand people in my Facebook group at the time. Now it's over 20,000. And the name of the group is called Metflex Diet. So those listening or watching, please join us. It's awesome. But I gave it to a thousand people before I published the program. And the average weight loss was 14 to 16 pounds in six weeks, eight to 10 inches of fat in six weeks, simply because they were now seeing carbs and seeing fats and their body was learning how to burn whatever was available. So I'm fascinated by this. Is exercise a key component of it or is it strictly a, a dietary management? No. So there are four key components. The first component is sleep. Too many people are not getting restorative restorative sleep. You need good sleep, period. It messes up your hormones, blah, blah, blah. So we say sleep very well. The second thing is exercise. Exercise is absolutely fantastic at improving your metabolic flexibility. Do I mean you have to go to the gym for an hour and a half until you're dripping sweat? Absolutely not. You could do 20 or 30 minutes of what are called HIIT exercises, H-I-I-T, you know this, high-intensity interval training, just 30 minutes, And that is absolutely phenomenal. The third thing, by the way, is something called carb cycling or cyclical keto. What that means is this. You cycle in and out of keto. So keto for the long term, I'm not a big fan of. I've never been a big fan. of. I don't think it's very healthy for long term. But research shows if you did keto for five days, then carb load for two days, then keto for five, then carb, that allows your body to see the carbs, and the fats. The fourth component to the program, which is effective, is intermittent fasting. Mm. So in the book, I use three different types of intermittent fasting. I use the TRF method, which you everyone knows, the time-restricted feeding. You take your 24-hour day, you divide it in an eating window and a fasting window. Everyone says that, oh, I'm doing 14, I'm doing uh, 14, 10, 16, 8, whatever. Okay, that's one method. The other method is called the 5-2 method. I think Jimmy Kimmel used to do this. The 5-2 method is, Five days of relatively normal eating, two days of 800 calories or less. Make sure those two days, those low-calorie days are not consecutive. The last method we use is the alternate day method. This is the most aggressive method. Normal eating one day, 500 calories the next day. Normal eating, 500 calories. So you alternate the low-calorie days. You take those four things I just mentioned and put them together, and that switch, the metabolic switch I'm talking about, becomes unstuck.
Globally, humans are facing massive problems that are widely ignored by governments and the media. Like personal space invaders. I've had it with these couples that sit on the same side of the booth. Yak mouths. Stupid stick figure bumper stickers. Almond milk. You cannot milk an almond. Hi, I'm Jennifer. And I'm Angie. We call her Pumps, and we're the hosts of I've Had It. Pumps, tell the listener where they can find us. Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nailed it. See you next Tuesday. Yeah, that makes sense to me because you're, you're sort of going at all the different aspects of metabolism, right? You're, you're going into keto, you're going into carb restriction, you're allowing carbs, you're fasting. It's all these different states. It, it, it sounds, the, the 500, 500 calories a day sounds a little challenging. Those are tough days. They're tough days. Let me tell you something. So I, in my group, I say, guys, I want honest feedback about the last week, that alternate day week. It's only one week of the program, by the way. And everyone said, I was scared to death of those days. But after doing it once, it got easier and easier because they realized that actually you can do a 500-calorie day. Um, You just have to plan your meals, when you're going to have them, and what you're going to have to make them last. So it's just really planning. But they can be tougher, but the results that week are phenomenal. Do you do anything to manage appetite during those days? Do you give, you know, bushels of lettuce or celery or something, anything like yeah. that? <laughs> Great question. So in general, I say to people a couple of things. Number one, I say is before you eat anything, drink a glass of water. Hmm. Before you touch a bite, you got to drink one whole cup of water first. Secondly, add some citrus to your water. We don't know why, but for some reason, citrus has shown to have some um, appetite suppressant effects. Well, that's a so great, squeeze that's some a great lemon. Hack. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Squeeze something in there. Yeah. The other thing I say to them is try to eat foods that have high water content. Like you just said, mm. lettuce, kale, cucumbers, things that have high water content where you can eat big volume and low in calories. Not fruit. And the other thing Not I fruit. say to people is, say it again. Not fruit because they're also high in water, but no, no, no. Yes. And then the other thing is, Eat things that smart snacks that have good protein that are whole grains that will make you feel full longer and add some fiber. So eating hummus, um, you know, with something, even air pop popcorn is a great snack, by the way. You can eat two cups of it for very little calories. You just can't add all the butter and all the other stuff. So, yeah, there are tricks I give in the book about how to suppress your appetite so you don't feel too hungry in those 500 calorie days. Yeah, it's interesting. I I have uh, messed around with a million different diets and things over the years, and and um, I finally got on a sort of a carnivore thing on a challenge, and I thought, oh, I think I found the solution. I I can. I'm never hungry. I feel great. This is, you know, carbs. Really, I, I really carbs are, are a problem. I, I think I have LP little a pro, uh, you know problems and uh, insulin problems, and I just mm-hmm. I just it's in my family. I know it. I have central central stuff. That's where the fat yeah. goes. I've hypercholesterolemia, I have hypertension, I have, I have all of it. I have insulin resistance, I'm sure. So I thought, oh, this is it, just get rid of the carbohydrates. Um, I'm also clearly very good at using proteins to build carbohydrates and fat. <laughs> so so I, wasn't, I wasn't weighing myself for a few years. And when I finally did it, I'm like, oh, shit, <laughs> you can't just do this. <laughs> well, you know, and I always say, Drew, listen, I've written, I don't know, maybe 18 diet books. There is no one diet for everybody, period. Yeah. 
But people have to find a program that works for them. Our genes are different. Our styles are different. Our food preferences, our affordability, all these things should influence. The mistake that people make is they see a popular diet and they say, man, I got to do that diet. Well, even though it's working for all these people, it just may not be the right diet for you. So people need to be better consumers and shoppers and figure out which program is more suitable to their particular variables. I completely agree with you. The, the one size fits all thing is just is silly almost. I mean, it's nothing yeah. in medicine that's like that. And and I feel like your the Medflex gives you some adaptability. My my question is: Is there a maintenance phase? How do you, how do you deal with the maintenance? Great question. So people typically will do two cycles of it. Once they do one cycle, and one more cycle, and then the maintenance is very simple. The maintenance is this: I expect by the time you finish two cycles that you can put the book in the bookshelf and you can make better decisions, not all the time, but 70% of the time. Let me give you an example. If you know you're going to a function after work and it's not going to be the healthiest of foods, then that means that during breakfast and lunch, we're going to be smart. Okay. We're going to have salad, lean protein, right? We're not going to eat fried foods. We're going to give ourselves a cushion for that night. So my goal with the Metplex diet is to get people to understand not just how to lose weight, but how to make good decisions. And people do it. And then every once in a while, by the way, if you feel like you've gotten off course, choose one or two weeks, like a card has a tune-up. Go tune yourself up with one or two weeks and then go back at it. I don't want people for the rest of their lives following a strict program. I just don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. I, I, I sometimes think, you know, that simply eating consciously is half the battle. Now, of course, if you're going to eat consciously, you have to have a, a knowledge base to approach that conscious eating. But just if you pay attention, I, a lot of people do not have any sense of what they put in their mouth. They're, they're just not aware of it. And if you just become aware, A, that's going to make a difference right away because you'll stop doing some of the stupid stuff you do. And B, you'll start looking for information because you'll want to do it better. The one time, let me give you one example, dies dyes in food, artificial coloring, awful, just awful for all kinds of reasons. The only time I eat artificial coloring is when I go to a Chicago Bulls game and I get a rainbow cake and I eat about, and I'm, and I'm open about it. I put it on my Instagram. <laughs> I eat about a quarter of my rainbow cake. Yeah, That's the only time. But like you said, you have to be a conscious eater. Like you say to yourself, do I really want to put all this junk mm. in me, particularly as we age? Right. And right. so eating cleaner just makes so more so much more sense. And I and I marry, by the way, eating cleaner with being a conscious eater. Yeah, I agree. And and then back to exercise, you know, that that changes across the lifespan a bit too. You talked about the hit approach and but I, I do you have any more granular advice about that? I've I've noticed, you know, I used to love you know, heavy weights, low rep. I just loved them. He did it. You know, and, and so, you know, part of my philosophy on the, on the exercise system too, was the one you'll do is the one you'll do. And if you like it, you're more likely to do it. And so I did that for years. Now I've completely messed up my shoulders completely. I, I, I think I have a labrum tear and I'm sure my rotator cuffs are gone and I, I can't, this is it. This is the extent of my active, you know, extension of my shoulders. It's bad. And they hurt yeah. all the time. And I just won't get the operation. I'm such an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> but welcome. 
<laughs> My wife says the same thing about me, too. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we are, but men, we typically are. That's the way it goes. Um, but I've learned to work around it, but it has de- significantly changed the way I work out. And I'm at much higher reps, higher intensity, all that stuff. And, and as I was getting into that, I thought, well, this is more appropriate for my age anyway, isn't it? So here's the thing. I'm so glad you had this. Is I love this question. I also have been lifting heavy weight most of my life. I like lifting weights, yeah. not just because I want to have that kind of body. I just like lifting. It, it weights. feels it's good, right? Your certain right? people it just feels great. It just, it just Arnold, feels great. Arnold talks about that all the time. It just feels good. <laughs> However, I will be honest with you. About ten years ago, yeah. It was the first time I noticed that when I'm lifting my weight, like my joints, I was feeling my elbows, yeah, my yeah, shoulders. Yeah, yeah. I said, whoa, what's happening here? Yeah. It was aging. Yeah. It was it was too many cycles on the body, and it was letting me know that. What did I do? I said, okay, let me be smart about this. I am not going to enter any powerlifting competitions. That's right. Anybody who, who am I trying to impress? Who are we impress? Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So what I did was I came down on my weight. Yeah. I increased my reps, my yep. repetitions. That's what I did. And I felt like instead of trying to bang out 255 on the bench press, yeah. I went down to 225, 235. And after that workout, I felt fine with it. And by the way, you know, I, everyone has vanity. I didn't lose my musculature or my appearance. It was still the same, but I wasn't trying to quit, kill myself lifting 275 twice. Yeah. So yeah. the the two things I recommend, and I want to write a book on this really badly, the two things I recommend as we age that people need to really focus on is stretching, mm. stretching, 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 and lean. I shouldn't say this technically, but people know it is this lean muscle mass. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. As people age, they don't pay attention to their muscularity. They let it go. Mm. They stop lifting. They don't do resistance workouts. They just want to do cardio, but we need good muscle mass as we age, it's very protective. It's very important. And one of the mistakes that older people make is they go more to cardio and less to resistance bands or weightlifting. So I would like to write a book to tell people as you age that these are the kinds of exercises you need in order to feel healthy, look healthy, not trip on curbs, by the way, where your foot is catching the right. curb and you fall. Right. These are the things. I, I was talking to Peter Atia about this, and we agreed on two things. One was that musculature, highly predictive as you get older of all kinds of things, all kinds of stuff. And people don't realize how significant falls are in terms of, you know, you as an orthopedist really had, you know, had your face pressed to the mirror about that. I mean, when, when Joe Biden fell down the third time, I thought, oh, boy, three falls in an elderly patient is like that's predictive of trouble. I'm telling you right now, you know, one of the things that scared me from the very beginning, and I'm not speaking, this is not a mental capacity issue. It's his physical conditioning. Yeah, yeah. I've always worried that he's going to fall and really hurt himself, his mm-hmm. head, break a limb. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying to myself that the people around him have to do a really good job of making sure that his pathway is clear. The surfaces are not, even. Surfaces are yes. even. You notice he doesn't, he's not, you notice what I know, his gait, he doesn't swing his, you know, doesn't swing his arms, his gait's off, you can see it. Listen, yeah. as a, a rehab guy, I went from yeah. ortho to rehab. Yeah. As a rehab guy, I'm telling you, yeah. when I look at him and other senior 
politicians yep. and their gait, how they're walking. Yep. There is so much danger in it. I'm just, and I said to my wife all the time, oh my goodness, I can't even watch him come down the steps. Yeah. Because <laughs> because it takes, well, Drew, you know this. It takes but you know just, what it means. You you see the future. You know what, what this leads to. I do too. That it is takes a millisecond. It takes yeah. a millisecond of lost focus yep. or a millisecond of bad coordination to be disastrous. It yep. just does. Yeah. And by the way, people don't appreciate, I, I know you do as a rehab person, but the, 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 the rise and the depths of stairs, our brains are highly attuned to that. And if it's off by a quarter inch, we will fall. A, a, a young person will fall. On 100%. And yeah. here's the other part of it. As we get older, our proprioception our build, our spatial relationships, the yep. ability to discern them, it just genetically, it just it, it, it decreases. It, 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 so, yeah, yeah. so, so as a kid, as a young guy, you can walk and step on a curb and be looking up in the sky and never even think about it. As we get older, we have to negotiate that curb, and if we don't do it, catastrophe. It's bad, and, and yeah. literally, the, the proprioceptive function of the central nervous system diminishes. The information coming from our leg diminishes through the neuropathy yes. of just aging and pounding on our feet for all these years. Was what? The, let me just add the second thing that Atia and I talked about. Though I, I was, I was asking him about. You know, he like he's very deep into the longevity thing, and uh, and um, I said, you know, I've talked pimping him about metformin and other things I've heard about, and he finally looks at me, and goes, vigorous exercise, vigorous exercise. That's that's the that's it. That's the one thing, and and he didn't mean cardio. He he meant more hit weightlifting. The the question I let me ask you a specific question because I I've kind of. You mentioned uh, dropping your weights by about 20%, it sounds like. I've had to go down quite a bit more, like 30 to 50% of some of my weights to deal with my shoulders. And so and so I've increased the speed, you know, the the again, the intensity and the supersetting and all that kind of stuff. But I find myself creeping up <laughs> because of old habits on the weights, and it and it's not good. <laughs> I get too tired then, and I'm my shoulders are really messed up. How do you figure out and the zone, what the right zone is for an intense workout, particularly when you've been used to lifting heavy weights? It's really an interesting question, right? Yes, it's very interesting. I think, and you line 100 guys up, they'll give you 100 answers, but here's my answer. Yeah. I think the first thing that is a determinant is what is your goal? First of all, what is the goal, right? So for me personally, my goal is not to show off and go into a weight room and lift 315 pounds. That's not my goal. My goal is when I put on a suit or a shirt that I look very fit and feel good about what I look like. That's my goal, number one. So because that's my goal, how do I get there? Okay. For me, for me, the way I like to get there is I like to work body parts. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're different strategies. Yeah. I'm a body part guy. Me too. Certain days I do certain body parts. Yep. But I've learned something new. This may help you. I learned something new. In the old days, we always thought you worked one body part a week. That's it. If you don't do it, the body's not, the muscles won't recover well. If they don't recover well, you're not going to get growth. That's not true, actually. In fact, the new research says that it's more important. We used to say damage your muscle to grow. It's more important to go to failure. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can actually go to muscle failure without going to muscle damage. So what, what does that mean? That means that instead of me bench pressing 225 eight to 10 times, I can go down to 215 and do it for more reps, go to failure 
and I'm still going to have good advice. The results yeah. that I would have gotten potentially hurting myself, by the way, yeah. trying to do too much weight at my age. So I think the answer for you is that you should focus on failure. Yeah. How do I get my muscle to failure with lighter weight? Each, and you're still going to get the outcome. Each set or by the time I get to the third or fourth set? No, by the time you get to, right, not not each set. Yeah. By the time you get to the last set, yeah. the last two sets, you want to go to failure. That's yeah. my, so if I do four sets, my first two, I'm repping, repping, repping. Last two, I'm going to failure, stopping, and then one more to failure. Okay. Got it. I love that. Because yeah. I, I yeah. kind of, I've also creeped over that way too. I, I kind of, I kind of creep in different directions, you know, because you're, when you're doing so, you know, you like to challenge yourself, do a little better. Yes. It, it's just part of the fun of being in there. And um, so. But the could, other thing, Drew, is the other yeah. thing is you haven't been, it's a new way of doing it. And so you and I have been trained in a, in a, in a more traditional way. We just yeah. have to psychologically break that yeah. and say this new thing, dang away is good too. Yep, that's, that's absolutely right, and and it's again appropriate for certain ages. I mean, if the, you know, if a twenty year old kid wants to mess around with three hundred pounds, fine, go do it. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Pick up that glass of Pinot Grigio, your drink of choice, and come have some fun with us on Turtle Time. We're gonna do more than just drink and party on this podcast, Mom. I know, I know. Okay, if you don't know who I am, well, I'm Ramona Singer. And that's my daughter, Avery. And you probably know us best from the Real Housewives of New York. And now you'll get to know us even better on our podcast, Turtle Time. Let's make more iconic moments together every Wednesday. It's Turtle Time. Follow, rate, and review now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You have a master's in science education. Tell tell me more about what that degree did, what that degree was and what it did for you. I, I was fascinated by that. Okay. So let me tell you how it really started in all honesty. Okay. I'm a senior at Harvard. One of my friends, a science guy, we're in the library, the science library, and we're, we're walking by a billboard and we see this, literally this flyer for get your master's at Columbia University. <laughs> so I said, Okay. I knew I wanted a gap year between undergrad and medical school. I also knew I wanted to live in New York. I've always been fascinated with New York. I had no way to live in New York. I had no money, nothing other than my desire. And this said that you can get your master's at Columbia in New York City. And I said, whoa, this may check off all the boxes. And it was an education, which I was very interested in, not to become a teacher, but I was very interested in kind of the whole philosophy of education in the country because I felt as though it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. Mm. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to apply to this program. I'm going to master's in science education. Okay. And it's going to teach me about pedagogy, scientific pedagogy and research as it related to education. And, but here was the problem. The problem was that it was a two-year program and I only wanted one gap year before going to medical school. So I walk into my counselor's office. I'll never forget this. And I say to her, okay. She says, Smith, what are you taking? And I gave her my, my class list. She said, you can't do that. I said, why not? She says, this is a two-year program. I, said, I know, but I can do this one. You can't do it. <laughs> I said, listen, I'm going to medical school next year. Okay. I believe I can do this. Please allow, I, I, please allow me to try this. She yeah. says, 
if you want to try it, you can try it, but I'm telling you, it's crazy. Well, of course I did it. Um, and I did a year in New York. I got my master's in science education. And then I went on to Dartmouth to medical school. But what I really learned from that year um, was that the whole idea, the principles behind education, which I never thought of before, by the way, didn't understand education from the from behind the scenes. And I have a better grasp of education and, and science education in particular. You were going to mention the philosophy of education. Educate me. What, what's behind the curtain, so to speak? Oh, yes. So, you know, it's there are so many different pedagogical philosophies in education. I mean, there's so many of them. Uh. Um, and what I learned was that all these years that I had been learning, every professor had a different pedagogical philosophy. It, I couldn't feel it because my thing was like, you, you go to class, you take notes, you study, you take an exam. But it's not that simple. There are different ways that professors will either present the information or extract your understanding of the information yep. and then help you utilize that for further exploration. And yeah. so I learned all these different ways to do that. And, and by the way, I decided there was not one right or wrong way, but I did decide that different people respond to different styles. So you have you have good students, by the way, who are in a classroom being taught a certain way that does not match with the way that they learn. It just doesn't match. Yeah. yeah. So it was very interesting. Yeah. The the one style I'm sure you got exposed to at Harvard that I got a big dose of was the one where they just go figure it out. <laughs> here's a, here's a question that Nobel laureates are struggling with. Let's see what you do with it. And, and just like, huh? <laughs> what? <laughs> and that, that, that felt like, it grew brain tissue better than anything else I ever did. <laughs> Cause you go, but then, then when I went to medical school, it's like, all right, learn these pathways, learn these, just put all that's this right, in. Right. It felt like a language class when I got to medical yeah. school, just put all this shit. Yes. In. And then when I got on the wards, then I could start to use the, the, the thinking, all the stuff I'd learned in undergraduate. Well, yes. Undergrad to me was more like you just said, undergrad to me was more of, and I'm being taught by the guys who wrote the book, of course, um, undergrad was like, here is the issue. See what you can think of it. These are some of the problems. What do you think about it? Yeah. Whereas medical yeah. school was a lot of rote memorization. A lot. This is the name like, of the like muscle. language. Like language, right? right? This, Just like language. Just put this in your head. <laughs> that's right. This is the name of the muscle, name of the yeah. disease, name yeah. of the bug, whatever it is. Yeah. And then, like you said, when we got to residency, then it was like, okay, all that stuff that we've been memorizing, now you're seeing this stuff in real life. So um, it's like, you know, my kid driving learning how to drive now like he did this classroom yeah now dude we're on the road so yeah. all that stuff you did in class now it's real time where people backing up into you noise yeah. you know yeah. all that kind of thing so very yeah interesting. it's it's so interesting and and i and i noticed you know the kind of the the people that had been well trained to think I saw the I saw the group kind of separate. You know, people that were just just tell me what to do, tell me what to do, tell me what to do. And it's like, no, 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 go figure it out. Go improvise, solve it. Tell me why you that's, didn't. That's why I tell my kids, one of my biggest jobs is to teach you how to be a good thinker yeah. and how to make good decisions. Yeah. That's one of my most important jobs. Right. Because so, so I, I I'm gonna drill on that because that is yeah. that is our job as physicians. They yeah. our, our knowledge base goes 
without saying. You yeah. know, patients come in and think when they bring their Google searches in that they're enhancing our now. No, no, they're just telling us the sky is blue. We know the sky <laughs> is blue. But to make the right judgment, the right call, to figure things out when the things are not clear, that's our job, right? That's why you see a doctor. And and you're and in this for the surgeon, when the field is open and shit goes down wrong, you can improvise and solve and figure it out. One of the most horrifying aspects of COVID for me was I saw most of our peers all of a sudden just look to authorities to tell them what to do with patients with very complicated problems and do nothing more than what they were told from on high. Did you notice that? I felt that COVID really revealed some major weaknesses in healthcare. Oh my God. Um, and it really, what was the couple things that were, okay, two of the most disappointing things of many for me for COVID. The first thing was that I felt like physicians were not leading the charge Correct. and they were not thinking independently. Correct. Right. Uh, and we're afraid to yes. and told not to. And then we're yes. afraid they were going to lose their job if they did. And yes. then became part of a mob <laughs> where yes. you didn't dare. It was, yes. that was, that was very disappointing to me. And I felt like this is when we need to rise and shine. This is, you know, you know, not that I was excited about COVID, but this is center stage now. And we did an awful job, mm. awful job. That's yeah. the first disappointment. Yeah. The second disappointment was I felt as though, and you and I have been in media for a long time, the communication was abhorrent. Abhorrent. Ab- I totally abhorrent. agree. Completely agree. It was, it was absolutely out of control. Someone at some point should have said, we are going to assemble this A-team and we are going to communicate to people in a relatable way what we know and what we don't know, by the way, too. You can, it's okay to say open and honest. We don't we don't know. Yep. But there was so much Michigas oh and so God. much miscommunication. Yes. That everyone kind of was out on an island trying to figure out like I gotta survive, man. And it was oh yeah. don't get me yeah. started. It was really bad. It, it, it was, was bad. Let me even put a put a finer point on that, which was when it was all going down, I, I for I have discovered, I, I've talked to a lot of people that have been canceled or in the rooms when decisions were made in the early days, and they made a conscious decision to use fear. It was a conscious decision, which is also atrocious. And and, it, and of course, you know, the press then went off with that because they could attract eyes with panic and it was just it suited their needs. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so you know, in eight, you know, I was I, you missed the AIDS epidemic a little bit. Um, you know, we were I was in it deep uh, in the early, you know, when we had nothing. We had I was there. Yeah. I was at the facility. I was working infectious diseases when we opened the AZT boxes. We first got the shipment. Jeez. Crazy time. Horrible. But one of the things we learned was how to shape health behaviors. It was not, you know, me with a white coat in a box using fear, telling them what to do, don't have sex without a condom, blah, 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 blah. We, would they, they would learn that that was the right thing to do. It would not change their behavior at all. What we learned was what you need is a relatable source, a story about someone like them, it looks like them, acts like them, whatever, humor, music, and then somebody explicating it on the heels maybe. That's it. That's it. That was all you needed. We none of that. I, I've actually noticed in the last couple of uh, months, they've they've brought some ads on TV and stuff that have some of that quality back in it. 
where did yes. that go? We knew that there was a discipline about about communication and health behaviors just totally destroyed during this. It was weird. It it was, and and then what happened was because the health experts were so bad at communication. Yep. Then the non-health experts, in quotes, experts, then all of a sudden their voice was equal to the medical voice Pe- because people who just learned how to pronounce the name of a medication that I've been using for 30 years had strong opinions about it. Why? Who are you? Why does the New York editorial board, New York Times editorial board, have a position about whether lockdown is a good idea or not? When did you come? You're not, you know, I was on the air. Uh, I did some local stuff here during COVID and I was on the air the night the school board in Los Angeles decided to close the school. And I, I started arguing with the guy on there. I said, where, what infectious disease consultant did you consult with who told you to do this? What health, what public health, who told you to do it? He said, we just think it's the right thing to do. That was how schools were closed in Los Angeles, closed. And that, and, and, and I said in my Instagram all the time, I kept saying in the beginning when there was no other way to communicate, really, I kept saying people are making decisions and having opinions and they have not had one day of infectious disease. Know, this is infectious disease. Yes. You got to let those guys help you and well, guide you. You just yeah, can't make decisions like this. I, I discovered, I, you know, I learned a lot in, in the aftermath of this thing. And I have discovered, and you'll, you'll really appreciate this, that a lot of the public health officials have no medical training, none. They're sociologists. They are sort of you know, they, they have no medical training. So of course they have no judgment about this thing. And this is another thing. And you'll appreciate this even more. I also noticed that at the state level, most of the public mental health officials, the heads of the public health departments were pediatricians. They were pediatricians because that's where, who oversaw vaccine therapies. And they, they had no judgment on adult medicine. They were freaking out about things that we would never freak out about in adult medicine. And that caught my attention. I thought, boy, we have really got a problem with our public health system in terms of who is man in the ship. I hope, I honestly, I hope that someone, and maybe it's happening, I don't know. I hope that someone's really doing a debrief. On well, all they're, they're, mis- Ian, they're not. They're, that's the thing. They're going, oh, let's we'll move, on, this- move on. Yeah, we made some mistakes. Let's move on. We can't move on. We don't have to put people in jail. We don't have to right. punish people. We have to figure out what we did wrong, fall on our swords, admit it, and then don't do it again. Absolutely. Because let me tell you something. Who knows what will happen in the future? But you better believe that lessons from the pandemic could really inform and save yes, lives yep. for something on the future. So I'm with you on it, man. It was... Yep. I'm glad we're through it, but we didn't need to lose this many people. I'm telling you. I agree. Listen, and and have the mental health aftermath that we're having and and the economic aftermath and all this suffering and the price to the underserved kids at school. All all that did not. That's a price we did not need to pay. You could have done it without that. See what hit blockbusters are streaming free during Popcorn Summer Movies on Pluto TV. Watch the first four Indiana Jones movies, or Minari, and Maid of Honor. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of channels with thousands more movies, available on live and on demand. Download Pluto TV on all your favorite devices for free. Pluto TV. Stream now. Pay never.
Um, let's talk about something fun. You're going to Africa. Yes. Yeah. So um, Africa is a, a, a life changing experience for anyone who's not been. Tell me why. Uh, this, I, you, you, had a, you, you said that to me. And I said, we're going to save that for air. Why, why, why is that going to change my life? And where should I go? OK, so. There are a lot of great countries in the continent of Africa. I've been to Egypt, Morocco, Kenya, South Africa. Now we're taking our fifth trip to Joburg, Zimbabwe and back down to Cape Town. The reason why I call it life changing is because there's a special quality to the continent in several ways. One, it is really a largely unblemished continent. Yes, there's industry, there's big cities, Nairobi, and I get that. But really, most of Africa is really unblemished. It's mm. a very natural place. It reminds me of like being up in New Hampshire. I went for my first year of medical school. It's just untouched. Mm. Africa is really untouched, number one. Number two, the people of Africa, and I've traveled all over the world, and I like people from all over the world, but the people of Africa are very warm people who, this may come out the wrong way, but I'm going to try this. They realize they are not New Yorkers or Parisians or Londoners. Yeah. They get that. Yeah. Um, but they are very comfortable in where they are and who they are and how they are. And they treat other people with, with that humility and warmth and acceptance that makes you feel very immediately makes you feel very, very good. The other reason is because of safari mm. to me. And I like lots of activities. Safari to me is one of the most exciting and emotional experience you could have, one of, that you can have in life. Because we grow up with zoos. We grow up seeing this wildlife in captivity. But to actually see the wildlife completely free to roam, and you now are inside their domicile versus the other way around to have that feeling and to have a lion five feet from you and an elephant 10 yards away from you looking at you and a giraffe i mean to have those experiences number one you'll never want to go to a zoo again but mm. number two you now have greater respect for life in general by the way just mm. life in general human life animal life and so for me when we first went on safari I just felt a change in myself, honestly. And I felt more at peace. At more I, I've peace. heard other people say this. I, I, you're not the first yeah. person I've heard say this. Yeah, it just, you just, you're more at peace. And by the way, I still love my cities. I still love my country. I'm happy to always come home, always. But to be able to go and do that, which is why I say, I would like every American to have a chance once in a life to go on an African safari and just experience being, as they say, in the bush. It's just... It's just very life changing. I, I, it's just well, like I, I'm so excited to go back. You're convincing me, and, and, and I, I, you know, my friends that are African, I, the other word I think of when when I, you know, interact with them is they're they're spiritual, and they're spiritual in a way that it's a different kind of spiritual than than, than here, right? It, it's we tend to be spiritual in a way like we focus on a being, yeah. a spiritual being, yeah, we're tied yeah. to that. They're spiritual more in the realm of the universe. The flow, yeah. They're sort of the being, just taking, they're just going with whatever the universe has in store for them. Yeah. 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 They have such a greater respect yeah. for the universe. Yeah. And we say, 
God or Jehovah or whatever we, whoever our person is, but for them, it's more about like the universe. They have that kind of spirit about it. It's just, you got to go. I mean, Drew, you have to go. I'm also interested in the history and I, and I, and I have not been able to dig in the way I like. And and again, my friends, when I ask them about the history, they just go, we don't talk about it. I go, that's that that suggests there's something there that i need to know about i mean like a lot of people don't know the richest man in the world came from molly do you know this story i forget his name Start with an i don't know the story this is you know uh, probably pre-roman times i would say for sure this molly king had so much gold he went on a tour of the world and just handed out gold wherever he went and ended up crashing the economies of everywhere he went because the inflation might throw all his gold into it. So he had to go back to other, so we had to retrace the steps and buy back all the gold to stabilize the economy that he, and he, wow. and he could afford it. He could afford, he had, he had unlimited wealth. He was the richest man in the history of humanity. Just I got to read this. I'm going to look up his name. Hold on a second. Yeah. Look up his name because, because what I also love, by the way, in, in Africa is the history. Like yeah. I'm telling you right now, when you see the pyramids, Oh, in yeah. Egypt, in oh, Cairo, yeah. and when you see the 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 monuments that they built centuries and centuries and centuries ago with no machinery, no oh, yeah. machinery. Oh yeah, it almost drew. When you see it, it, it is so away. yeah, yeah. It makes your head hurt because you're yeah. thinking, <laughs> how in the heck did they lift this eight thousand pound boulder with nothing, yeah. no machines? Um, and the interesting thing is the guy. One of our guides said to us, believe it or not, they would float these huge boulders down the Nile River. Yep. And then they would try to move it so they could get it to land. And the thousands and thousands of people died trying to carry all of these different um, boulders and all these different natural resources. It was, anyway, it's breathtaking. So this is Mansa Musa, King Mansa Musa of Mali, 14th century. It was sort of Middle Ages then. I was wrong. It was not pre-Rome. It was sort of Middle Ages. And um, yeah, he was uh, the richest man of all time. Jeez. uh, Okay. I got to look at, I got, I love history. I got to look that up. There's a, um, there's a podcast called the fall of civilizations. And he has like a two hour thing on, on that, that empire. So it's, it's. Guess what? I got to drive in about eight hours. Yeah. And that's what I'm going to listen to. All of civilizations. Yeah. So isn't that, I mean, and yet we're, we're so, this is, this is what I think of when I think of white supremacy, that we don't know, you know, we we're so Eurocentric, you know, sort of our, our little sort of thing. We, we, we really, people are, you know, there's nothing more important that comes out of our present moment. I think than us be working hard to expand our view of the world and other people's experiences. I have said for years If you could choose one thing to help Americans better respect each other and the rest of the world, it's travel. Americans don't travel. Yeah. Yeah. We go to Cancun. We go to Jamaica. Okay, fine. We go to Paris. But you have to travel the world and see different civilizations. And this is what you come to learn. I tell my kids this. I say to my kids, look up at that sun. They look up. I said, the sun that warms you and your friends and the way you feel about it is also owned and shared by these kids in Japan and in Beijing uh, and in Paris. 
we all own these things. And so that gives you a greater respect that this is not our world. We have part of the world and we share it with others. And therefore, we're more respectful of it. Like when I talk, when I look at war, for example, mm. and human beings just destroying them, each other mm. and destroying the physical planet, it's awful. But a lot of people don't have, like you said, that perspective of kind of like how big the world is and how all of us are part of this world. Travel is one of the answers, I think. Fair, we need to hang out more. That's 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 what I learned more than anything from this. And that all my blisters need to go buy the Metflex diet. Those are the two yes. things I take away from today. <laughs> and so, if you like a good mystery, if you like a good mystery, read The Overnights. It's a mystery-based and a ratings war between two local Chicago anchor women who are trying to maintain the number one spot. Uh, it's an Ash Kane series. This is the third installment. So check out The Overnights. It's a lot of fun. Oh, it sounds it sounds awesome because I know you've seen that stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, you too, right? You, yes. you know it. <laughs> it. You have to. It doesn't take long to learn how that all works. <laughs> all right, buddy. Uh, is there a website or Instagram or Facebook where you want people to go? Yes, go to my website, drian.smith.com. Spell the doctor out, I yeah. Smith. Yeah. My Instagram is at Dr. Ian Smith. Once again, spell it all out. Um, and uh, on my Facebook, uh, join my book club. It's called The Good reading room the good reading room great all right my friend thanks man nice talking to you see everyone else take care all conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the dr drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers although dr drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the american board of internal medicine and the american board of addiction medicine he is not functioning as a physician in this environment the same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com 